This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work Session 8 What White People Gain from Doing Anti-Racism Work The Doing Our Work series continues for its second season with a presentation by Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance member Carrie Thatcher on what white people gain from doing anti-racism work. everybody. Can you hear me? Excellent. I am honored to be here tonight to share some of the reflections that I have had on what is in it for white people to do anti-racism work. And I want to start out by saying that none of these ideas are my own. They are not new. They stem from a movement. A movement of led by people of color, and a few courageous white people throughout 400 years of our history. And by virtue of being here tonight, you are a part of it too, so welcome. First of all, I wanna contextualize everything that we're gonna talk about tonight um, by saying, making it unequivocally clear that people of color, and in particular black people, have and continue to suffer the most as a result of structural and institutional racism. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? (laughs) But um, bear with me here because it's important um, to understand, in order for us to understand what white people can gain from doing anti-racism work, we have to understand what whiteness and what racism costs us. But at no point do I want you to imagine that when I'm talking about what racism costs white people, that I'm ever asserting that the suffering of people of color and what it costs white people are in any way equivalent. They are not, okay? But because we so often focus on the oppression of racism or the advantage that we get as white people, we very rarely take a minute to understand the ways that racism and white, whiteness as a culture actually harm us. And when we don't understand how racism and whiteness harm us as white people, we have no way of getting in touch with the depth of transformation that we need to experience if we're truly gonna dismantle this. And we don't understand why we're in it. If we think we're in it for others, we're showing up for the wrong reasons and we're not going to be effective. Anne Braden says it in a way that is much better, or she said, um, rest your soul. Um, I'm from, I came here from Louisville, Kentucky, and so um, I didn't know about Ann Braden until I was living in Louisville, and people all around me said, well, Ann used to say, Ann used to say, and that's what I mean, that this is a movement, that we inherit this work from people who've been doing it, and we will be doing it if, if we get in touch with what we can gain from doing anti-racism work, we will be doing it until the day we die, too. And Ann Braden says this, a new massive thrust toward racial justice will not alone solve all the problems that face us. But I am convinced that unless such a thrust develops, one that is global in its outlook, the other problems will not be solved because they are at the bottom of this society, people of color. When people of color move, the foundation shifts. In a sense, 
The battle is and has always been for the hearts and mind of white people in this country. The fight against racism is not something we are called to help people of color with. We need to become involved as if our lives depend on it, because in truth, they do. So this series started out about a year and a half ago um, with a, a session on what is white. And so in order to understand what we can gain from doing anti-racism work, um, we first have to understand, well, what is whiteness, first of all, and um, what it actually costs us. And so I just want to clarify real quick, this is a simplified version of a definition that's a lot more complicated, but um, basically whiteness is a social and political category created in the 1600s during colonialism and colonial expansion created by Europeans in order to grant people like themselves, those who would later become white, us, access to power and privilege. So whiteness is about power, and it's about giving white people advantage. Now we could spend an hour unpacking that, and if you go to Fusion Films' website, you can watch a presentation that will do that for you. So that's all we're gonna spend on it tonight, but it's, what's important for us to realize is that it's a made-up category that gives certain, to, to group certain Europeans together, socially and politically. Its purpose is for our advantage, and it's been with us a very long time. So it's not about us as individuals. Whiteness and what it means and what it is affects us as individuals, but we, we do not bear responsibility for creating it. We bear responsibility for how we respond to it. And that's where our hope lies. It's because we have the choice to become part of what Ann Braden called the other America. Those people who have always been working to dismantle this unjust distribution of power in our society. So if it was created for our advantage, right, what does it actually cost us? How do, what, what are those ways? So in my perspective, there's, there are possibly many, many, many more ways of describing this, but for, from where I sit, there's five major ways that racism and whiteness cost white people. There's human costs, there's economic costs, there's cultural costs, spiritual costs, and relational costs. We're gonna talk a little bit about each of those, but not spend equal time. And these are all bound up, they, are, they weave tightly around us. So I'm probably gonna jump back and forth a few times. Um, don't worry, it's, this is not gonna be linear, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard for me to tease out how these are you know, in, into separate things, so. Um, but, you know, I just realized for a minute that, um, well, I'll tell a little bit of my story later. I, I, I also want you to know that, you know, this, this work comes out of a movement, and, and I'm not here claiming to be an expert on any of it. I'm only sharing with you what brings me to this work and what keeps me in it. So hopefully at the end, we'll also have some time for dialogue, because it'd be lovely to hear what this brings up for you um, by the end of the night. And, also, where you want to take it as well. So just a little aside there. Um, so the ways that whiteness costs us um, in human terms, now this is a slide, it's a teaser from a presentation that Bay Love gives. It's called a groundwater presentation. Many of you may have seen it. Um, and this just shows um, 
on the bottom, we've got um, the rates, the relative rate index of um, the, the risk to white people for having negative outcomes in each of these domains, and they are health, education, criminal justice, uh, child protective services, and economics. So in health, um, we see that we are, so black people are two and a half times as likely to have death from diabetes than white people, which means that we are two and a half times less likely to have a bad outcome. Infant death is about the same. It's about two uh, times more likely um, for, in education by third grade, for students to be below grade level. Um, so white people are uh, two times less likely to have a bad experience in this institution of education. Um, for long-term suspensions, you see that that rate is actually quite high, nearly four and a half times less likely than, than black people to have a negative experience when it comes to suspensions, and on and on and on. And this is just for North Carolina. Okay, the, the um, criminal justice one is incarceration rate, routine traffic stops, children in foster care, and economics is children below 200% of the poverty level and unemployment. So we're um, less than twice as likely to be unemployed as black people. So that's, that's just North Carolina, right? So when you look at that, we're doing pretty good. Um, it's, there's a lot of advantage there that we get for this. But when you compare us to the rest of the world, not looking so great. Now this comes from um, Bloomberg News, and it's actually a report that was published um, in The Lancet just a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, and what it was is the, the UN has set up some millennial development goals, or, and then after the millennium passed, they changed it to sustainable development goals. And these are global quality of life and health indicators that they are saying nations should be striving for. Um, and so there's um, this article looked at from 1990 to 2015, 188 countries. They looked at 33 different indicators of health and well-being. And then they looked at the data, they checked for data quality, they checked for equivalence, they made sure things lined up, and they created an index that measured the progress each country had made towards the goal, and then they also made, um, they, they ranked each country relative to one another in terms of absolute terms as well. So in, of the top 30, we are number 28. And the, uh, after the number 30, there's fewer and fewer developed countries, fewer and fewer European countries. Um, and so you can compare us to Iceland and, and Sweden, Singapore is up there in number two, the UK is number five, and this is sort of an aggregate uh, ranking that includes things like suicide rates, um, death due to air pollution is one of them, maternal and uh, mortality and uh, death in childbirth or death of your child before the age of five. So that's what all this is looking at. Um, I have to point at the computer not the screen. <laughs> so in here it shows a few examples of on the left where the US needs some improvement. Um, this 0 to 100 scale is where 100 is like the best possible observed outcome, and 0 is like the worst. So in some cases, 100 could be more of something, or it could be less of something. It's just the best. Um, so in childhood obesity, we are at 
69 um, relative to the best observation or the best country. And the Philippines is higher than we are in terms of has better child obesity rates than we do. Um, in violence, we are 42. So El Salvador is worse. Syria is better. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a little hard to swallow, isn't it? This does go to 2015. Um, and then Germany is better, not surprisingly. Um, alcohol un or un unsafe drinking patterns, we're kind of neck and neck with the UK. Um, a lot better, or uh, Saudi Arabia is a lot better, obviously, because they primarily don't believe in drinking alcohol. Um, but then we're over here on the other side, we're doing really good in, in number of fatalities per um, population when it comes to war, because all of our wars are off of our shores. Hygiene, we do pretty good there. Occupational risk, we're actually um, also very, very good in, in terms of accidents in the workplace. So some good things, um, but some bad things. And so when you, I wasn't able to find statistics that compared white people in the US to white people in other countries, because guess what, nobody really looks at that, because nobody really asks the question of how white people are doing compared to other people. Um, because whiteness is so normal, we don't mark it, we don't identify it. Um, but in terms of, like, we, we are comparing how we as a nation do to na national level statistics in other countries. So all of those problems, oh, I'm gonna stick around on this slide for a minute. Um, there's just dozens and dozens more um, suicide rates for, we're in the middle there um, relative to other countries. Um, and we were ranked 64th in maternal mortality per 100 births out of these 188 countries. That's, that's like the middle. Um, so that's some of the, the cost in terms of we have this very, very inequitable structure that we're existing in. And when we only look at what it's doing to people of color, we don't see that when people of color suffer, we all suffer, okay? And in economic terms, we have a number of organizations throughout our country that are set up to address these problems, right? Many of them are nonprofits. The Urban Institute says uh, in 2010, that the nonprofit sector was 5.5% of our gross national product um, and paid 576.9 billion in wages and salaries, which is 9% of the US total, employed an estimated 13.7 million people, had 2.1 trillion in revenues and 1.9 trillion in expenses as a sector, right? Okay, that's big. That's my point. The nonprofit sector is big. The nonprofit sector exists to solve these problems. That's a lot of money. Have we done it? Have we fixed them? We spend billions every year to solve the problems that are a, a result of this inequity. So one of the things we talk about um, that is another sort of teaser for a presentation that you probably will hear um, coming up soon is that socioeconomic status does not explain the differences in outcomes as well as race does. 
I mean, we would say that race determines your socioeconomic status in this country because it determines what kinds of jobs that you can get. There's studies that show that different resumes get uh, callbacks based on how black sounding or white sounding the name is. And that goes on and on and on. So um, this inequity and all of the associated symptoms that go with it is expensive for us to deal with. That's, that's the point of this economic cost. Um, and we spend a lot of time treating the symptoms of this problem and very, very little getting to know and understand what is at the root of it, and that is racism. We have very, very little skill at understanding that systemic problem. And that's part of why it costs us so much, because every five years we turn around and come up with a new way to package the same idea. So I want to talk a little bit, too, about the next cost to us. Let me find my list here. This one is really going to be, this, there's some stories here, y'all. Um, cultural costs. So one thing that is sort of in our consciousness, but maybe not um, as set into relief as hopefully this story will bring it for you, um, is that in the United States, we have this story we tell about who we are as a country, that you come from wherever you came from, you come through Ellis Island, you sign the, the, the book, you work really hard, you melt into the melting pot, and then you become, you achieve the American dream and become American and acculturate along the way. Does that sound familiar to people? Did you know that that is the story of this picture? This is the, the Ford English School. And in the middle there, I don't know if you can, I don't have a laser, but in the middle you see some, this, a guy coming down from the stairs, right? And then there's a big pot that he's walking away from. He's actually exiting a melting pot. So let me read a little bit about what this is. Um, and, and we'll talk more about it. I want to hear some of your experiences, too. Um, faced with an exploding demand for the Model T and a costly shortage of skilled labor, Ford engineers devised a series of manufacturing innovations culminating in the moving assembly line, increasing production, and allowing the company to expand employment of unskilled, mainly immigrant workers engaged in repetitious, quickly learned tasks. In 1914, excessive turnover, absenteeism, and other expressions of dissatisfaction prompted the company to launch the $5 day. So $5 is your wage for the day. This was double the going rate for employment um, in the area, in Detroit. Um, it offered to qualified workers nearly double those then current wages. Qualification, however, depended upon meeting a set of standards established by the company's sociological department. Investigators fanned out through the city, calling at workers' homes to corroborate statements about marital status, living conditions, savings, debts, recreation, and personal habits. 
The company also insisted upon the Americanization of immigrant workers. In particular, they were required to learn English. The Ford English School's graduation pageant, shown here, in which immigrants dressed in native costume from wherever they came from, wherever their, or their birth country was, descended into a melting pot and emerged in American dress, waving the American flag. It was a remarkable spectacle for that or any other time. Eventually, Ford abandoned this ambitious program. Many workers resented the companies prying into their lives, and World War I disrupted the labor market. So their immigrant identity was smelted away, left behind, in order for them to have access to a living wage. This $5 day was split, so half of it was wages and half of it was profit sharing. And in order to qualify for that profit sharing, you had to demonstrate your American character, adopt American ways according to Henry Ford. Okay, so there's a lot of <laughs> layered into that. Um, and we'll come back to a little bit of it later. Um, I'm gonna bump back here. So one of the other things about whiteness in the US that is helpful for us to understand is that from the get-go in our country, our conception of worthiness to be a full member of our society um, and our conception of whiteness and our conception of what is American have been bound up together. In the Naturalization Act of 1790, in order to become a citizen, you had to, it says that any alien being a free white person who shall have resided within the limits and under the jurisdiction of the United States for the term of two years and making proof to the satisfaction of such court that he is a person of good character and taking the oath or affirmation prescribed by law to support the Constitution shall be considered a citizen. So you have to have lived here, you have to be white and free, you can't be a white indentured servant, and you have to prove that you are of good moral character to the judge. <laughs> There's no regulations about like what constitutes good moral character, but we know from our stories that we tell that Puritans came over and you know, we, many of us have read the Scarlet Letter um, in our, our schooling about if you've done something morally deficient, you have to wear a sign around town showing that you are a bad person and you will be socially excluded, right? So we've bound up morality and we've bound up whiteness with American and with access to the rights of citizenship and full participation, participation in our society. And then we see a number of years later, Henry Ford really enforcing that in order to have access to the resources that his workers needed to have health and wellness, to have uh, sustenance for their families, they had to prove that they could melt. And whiteness was offered only to certain members of society. Um, and you may know from your family's history, and actually this is, you know, if you want to share a little bit about how many generations you've been here, white folks, you know, how, how many of y'all whose families immigrated within the last hundred years speak the language 
that they, of the country where they, your grandparents or great-grandparents came from. Which, what is the language? German. Okay. German. Did you learn it from your families? Ah, okay. <laughs> All right then. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, my my parents, um, my grandfather is the th second generation Italian, and my mom is the third generation Italian, and she had to learn how to make spaghetti sauce from a cookbook. Yeah, you know, it's it's just part of what we have to give up in order to access the privileges that whiteness offers us, which are really nice. They include safety. They include right to due process and the benefit of the doubt. That's really important. And we, we know from our own histories and from watching people today that parents encourage their children not to learn the language that they brought with them because they want them to more quickly become American and be able to access the dream that we offer, right? The dream of the house and the kids and the safety and the picket fence. But what we're finding is that that dream is harder and harder for us to get to. Because in our country, we assign value to humans in two ways, and this is what I believe anyway. You, please take issue with me if you'd like. But the way we assign value is moral quality and industriousness, right? I'm just gonna help us think about industriousness, right? Worker bees in a factory like Henry Ford. And the way that we prove to the world that we have good character and are industrious is that we have jobs. Somebody will pay me, validate my existence because they pay me to do something during the day, to be productive. We don't know how to value people for simply being. And that's because it was built into our culture from the get-go, from the values that we brought when our Puritan ancestors came over about hard work and, and, and those are things, they're not bad. What is bad is that we have taken those to their extreme by requiring that those be the way that everybody has to participate in in order to access basic human dignity. And in this economic downturn recently, this is, I'm going to read you from uh, a report in the New York Times that was featured on Diane Reading when they were talking about suicide rates spiking. And they've, the, the research over the last hundred years has shown that when the economy tanks, then suicide spikes. And what it says is that um, middle-aged white women had an increase of 80% in suicide. In, in this recent report. Um, and over the years, research has highlighted that the plight of less educated whites showing surges in death from drug overdose, suicides, liver disease, alcohol poisoning, particularly among those with high school education or, or less, has uh, a link 
between um, poverty, hopelessness, and health. So as the economy dips and people have a harder time getting that validation of their worth through someone paying them to be industrious, and as we vilify people who seek public assistance by calling them moochers and living off of the system, when you can't find work, you question your value. And I know that from personal experience. That's why I made that claim with authority, is because it takes a while to find a job in this market. And I went to school recently at UNC Chapel Hill, and it's taken me about a year and a half to find steady, sufficient work. And about eight months after graduation, when nothing was coming, I was interviewing, but no calls, no calls, no calls, no calls. I got depressed. Because I didn't think I had anything to offer the world. Because the world wasn't validating me with a job. Now, I knew better in my head to think that was true. But because I had learned about Henry Ford and how every single moment had to be measured, and every single you know, his wages, those that second half of that five dollar day were given to that was paid to the employees based on their efficiency. So we have in our culture this direct tie to productivity and value. You've heard the phrase get paid what you're worth, right? Imagine that. What you're worth can be monetized. Now, we told that lie about people of color for hundreds of years. And eventually we believed it about ourselves. And so when we look at what we can gain by dismantling racism, it's unlearning those attitudes and behaviors. It's learning that when we have people in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our mountains who can't find work, we don't have to call them trash. None of us is disposable. And whiteness teaches us that we are, unless we have this or that. And that's part of the spiritual cost of whiteness and racism to white people. There's another cost that is about, I'm going to flip back to our last, where's my little list here? Relational costs. And this, this keys into how we go about getting what we gain, right? So the relational cost of racism is twofold. One, the gulf of experience between what it's like to be a person of color in this country and what it's like to be a white person makes it really hard to have authentic relationships with people of color. Our world is so different, and we are socialized to see things in a certain way, and we're socialized not to believe it when people of color say, this is my reality. And so that creates distrust, so we don't get to have the kind of authentic relationships that could be possible if this arrangement were not in place, if we weren't in this hierarchy. But also, there's aspects of white culture that, as I said earlier, aren't necessarily bad in themselves, but we've taken them to this extreme that then damage our relationship to be, our, damage our ability to be in relationship with ourselves and with each other. So for example, individualism. You know, we believe in the rights of the individual, 
to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The New Hampshire state motto is live free or die. You know, it's, it's in us. It's, it's a big deal to take your stand and be different from the crowd. And what that does when it's taken to its very, very extreme is it isolates us from one another. So as we age, we don't have anyone to take care of us. Or when we're in those moments of depression, we don't say that that's what's happening. And, you know, I can tell this story of my life. Like, my parents are in California. My family lives out there. And I don't get to see them. And I, until recently, never even questioned the fact that I just left. I said, bye, I'm off on my adventure family. I'll see you a couple times a year. And <laughs> just two days ago or three days ago, I found out that my sister-in-law's grandmother had passed away two weeks ago and didn't, nobody told me. Yeah, so that, there's a disconnectedness from my people that I thought was normal. And that's not healthy. That's not the path to wholeness. And these are examples of our cultural ways of whiteness that just sort of sink in and it's the water we swim in, right? We don't even know it's there. Um, another aspect of it is this dichotomous thinking is a, a characteristic of, um, of whiteness, right? We're either or, you're either with me or you're against me. So there's, there's one zero kind of people, right? That's <laughs> the binary code in the computer is a one or a zero and there is no in between. You're either conservative or you're liberal. You're either good or you're bad. If one thing is true, the opposite or something contradictory can't possibly be true with it, right? This is just the way we are. And so we have a really hard time holding complexity. And the world's complex. So this makes life a challenge to us. We face a lot of dissonance. And what it does is it causes us to have a lot of anxiety when we try to learn about our history. And because we have these beautiful founding documents that say everybody is created equal. Okay, all men are created equal is what it says, but we know what it meant, right? Or at least we're reinterpreting that. And we want to believe in it. But if we actually look at the truth of our history, we've never behaved that way. Ever. Not yet. And when we want to believe in this vision of truth and beauty and justice about who we are as a nation, and we face the history of the inaccuracy of that, with our dichotomous thinking, we have to think, oh my God, I must be horrible if I'm part of this. We must be horrible as a country if this is true about us. But that is a, a false binary. It's not the truth. Both of those things can be true. We can be a great country filled with inspirational, courageous, innovative, creative, beautiful people. And we can have a horrible legacy. And we can have a lot of work to do to see the people of color in our history as full members of that creative, resourceful, whole, beautiful, innovative, righteous, peace and justice loving community. We can have a lot of work to do, but it's possible.
And so what I want to invite you into is what I see as a path. And what this is is ways that we can dismantle racism um, by, by ways we can access the things that we have lost due to racism and whiteness by dismantling racism. Okay, so let's, let me rephrase that to make it absolutely clear. The way that we recover and heal the things that we have lost due to racism and whiteness is by actively participating in an anti-racist journey for the rest of our lives to dismantle this inequitable power structure. And that's gonna be hard. <laughs> it's also an amazing journey. And some of the particular ways that we do that are studying the problem. We have to get a really well-developed analysis of how we got here. We have to keep learning our history. We have to keep questioning our present. And we have to understand that race-neutral solutions do not solve problems created by a race-based society. And we have to ask our questions when we are looking at all of those programs that the nonprofit sector is, is spending all that money on to solve all these things that we see when we look at how we compare to other countries, we have to say, okay, wait, this is happening in a racially constructed society, and if the solution is race neutral, what, is, what are the race impacts it's gonna have, right? But the other thing that we need to do that's a little more personal is get to know how whiteness shows up in our souls, in our socialization in our way of being, in our culture. And then we have to learn to resist it. And it's not always bad. It's certainly not even bad intrinsically, but some things about it are damaging to us and others. And so we need to learn to see that, and we need to learn to push back and practice new ways of being in relationship with one another and with ourselves. And in order to do that, we need to learn to be accountable to people of color in this movement. And people of color who are also on this journey, who are aware of the fact that we're not gonna get it right, <laughs> and we're gonna mess it up, and who will, we need to be accountable to this movement that we're a part of now from, from these 400 years of history. And people of color who are doing this work have information about what racism does in society that will help us as white people learn to ask the questions that we need to ask about how we're being in the world and what our actions, the consequences of our actions are so that we can try new ways of being. And also, all these white ways of being, this white culture that I've just been talking about, is one of many cultures, right? So people of color have other cultures, other ways of being that are completely counterintuitive for us. And I tell you what, if you hang out with me for very long, you will watch it happen live in action <laughs> when I am doing things in a totally white way and my friends who are people of color, uh, black women, black men, and uh, Latinas, they will be like, really? And they smile and nod, right? And then I smile and nod. 
because I know I just was really concerned about the time and they're not. Or I just got distracted by wanting evidence and they knew that I should just believe them because I should trust them. And those are different cultural ways of being. And when we spend time being accountable and in relationship and working to dismantle this system with people of color, we're going to learn about new ways of being. We're going to learn how to be in community with one another. And we're going to be able to reclaim some of what we lost. That's just one of the ways. We also need to recognize that we aren't going to know all the answers. We've been socialized to think that as white people, we've got it. We know what's up, right? We are on top of all of these systems, so there's got to be something about what we're doing that's the right thing, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't be succeeding. Never mind the fact that the systems were all built for us. But then when we go and we try to say, oh, here's what you need to do. After spending five minutes getting to know this problem that people of color have been living their whole lives experiencing, we need to realize that we don't always have all the answers and we need to realize that a big part of our job is to listen. A big part of our job is to listen. And I'm going to throw you for a loop here. Just as practice, not having dichotomous thinking, it's also important for us to speak up sometimes. There's certain times and places when a white voice is what's needed. Because we white people hear one another well, much better than we hear people of color. And we have a particular role to play in this. Because we are the ones who built this system, we are the ones who benefit from it, and when we get together and understand what we gain from dismantling it, it's all going to come down. And that's what you're here to be a part of tonight, is to learn that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to get it right. You don't have to have all the answers. But you do get to be in this work. It's quoted to the Talmud. Some also quote Rabbi Tarfan, that it is not upon you to finish this work. Neither are you free to desist from it. This is our journey for the long haul, and we're going to learn how to love each other in it. Thank you for your time. And I would love to hear thoughts and questions and, and stories that you bring to this. Anybody? Because we got a half an hour, we can dialogue. Oh no, I'm lying to you. We don't have a half an hour. But we still can dialogue, just fast. <laughs> oh, 8.30? Oh, okay, good. I, I thought, okay, 8.30 is when we're, so we got plenty of time. Yeah, questions, thoughts, reflections? Please. Okay. Or, or, I don't know how much I'm challenging you or just struck. You talked about 
one quality of our whiteness is insisting on evidence instead of just believing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking about <laughs> all of the, um, whether it's related to climate change or anything that Donald Trump says, <laughs> just believe me. Right, right. Just, oh, you know, you. you can believe me, I'll fix it. Or, yeah. you know, don't look for evidence about climate change, it's all bogus. Mm -hmm. Okay, how, how does that fit into what you were saying? Uh, so there's a couple of layers to that, right? One of them is patriarchy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Um, um, so part of our culture that came from Europe, we, um, our, our people developed in a place that was cold, where it was um, warm and sunny, shorter than it was cold and dreary. And so we had to know how long things were going to grow, how many people was going to feed. This is sort of how we grew up in our, our sort of ancient history. Um, so we got really good at counting things and measuring things. We also had to write things down in order to keep track of stuff, in order to know how many people were gonna survive. And so these are just sort of ways that we behave and, that, and values that we have. Um, so if it's written down, man, that's true. We believe things in writing. And it's, we have jokes about it now because if it's in the newspaper, it's gotta be true. If it's in the internet, it's gotta be true. And, but, and we do need to like question those, that evidence. So it's this weird, double, um, you know, we, we put faith in, in text, and we put faith in evidence, and text is evidence because it's written down, um, but then we don't put faith in somebody's word. Like, for instance, if you get a job offer over the phone, it's not real until it's in writing, right? Your contract on your house or the sale of a car, not real until it's in writing, and that's just how we are. Um, Simultaneously, the structures that were built, as we read earlier, that you uh, needed to be male to be a citizen, a white free person, but then later they specified male um, in order to have access to the power structures in our society. Um, we've also learned that men have a lot of authority. And so when they say something, white men in particular, we're just more inclined to believe them. And, I, and in my own life, <laughs> there's a story about me going to school and telling my teacher she was completely wrong about what state the Liberty Bell was in because my dad said so. <laughs> I was like, no, my daddy says it's this place. And up until about eight, uh, eight years old, I didn't know how to pronounce the word grotesque because my dad said grotesque and I just <laughs> thought that's what it was. You know, and I mean, it took me years to realize that the things that he said that he knew were not necessarily facts. Um, and so what that comes down to is who we believe, right? Because when we created white, a bunch of men in the Virginia House of Burgesses were making this debate about who was gonna get to be white. And at the time, there had previously been a marriage between John Rolfe and Pocahontas. And so there were Native American and white Englishmen um, descendants, 
And in the middle of this conversation, several decades later, they're trying to figure out how to um, divvy out privileges, and so they had to define white, and they, they came up with this, well, okay, it's gonna be anybody who has no blood whatsoever that is, at the, as they would say, Negro or Indian, right? But that didn't work, because all of John Rawls and Pocahontas' descendants were, had Indian blood in them, according to the, the verbiage of the time. So what they did is they created an exception. It's the Pocahontas exception, and it was discovered in the cases of, case of Loving versus Virginia, um, there was the anti-miscegenation case, or the, the interracial marriage case that came up in the 60s. And so a bunch of white men just defined reality. They just decided who got to be white and who didn't. And Pocahontas' descendants, John Rawls' descendants, they were accepted, they got to be white. So we have a tradition of white men just defining reality. <laughs> and because they have power, it is real. Um, so that's, that's what I would say about that. Also, when it comes to science, um, there's been this tension between qualitative and quantitative research. Um, and qualitative research is about words. It's about um, descriptive experiences. And we call the other research hard science, right? Or, or quantitative research. So much so that my research class was research methods, and then qualitative research methods. Somehow we didn't feel the need to name research methods as quanti uh, quantitative. You know, so that also speaks to this lack of value that we place on the spoken word, on the storytelling ways of being that people of color bring. Because enslaved African people were prohibited from learning, prohibited from writing. The only thing we left them was storytelling. And then we said, we won't believe you. So that's where that comes from. <coughs> so are you saying that in the story you told, when they look at you and, and you say, oh, I didn't believe, I, I was looking for proof. Are you saying that they're saying, I, there is proof? but you're not believing it because I'm saying it? Or are you saying that they said, you shouldn't need proof? Well, so it, in the example of, you know, if I'm in relationship with people of color. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, and proof is not bad. And we know that um, my favorite astrophysicist, whose name escapes me right now, Neil deGrasse Tyson, is all about evidence too, right? Um, but there are times when you can see that, for instance, if we're watching a video of an African-American person, male, female, transgender, woman, whomever, who has been uh, assaulted, and we're watching the evidence in front of our eyes, and then we find ways of disbelieving it because of who it's about. You know? Does that help? I just wanted to understand for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think the phrase that might help some folks is lived experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're kind of dancing around lived experience. Lived experience. So, you know, think of rape. I didn't bring rape, but there it is. Um, if no one is there, are you going to ask for proof? And what is your level, your burden of proof level? Mm -hmm. So, when you are asking someone about their experience of racism, if you are asking someone about their experience of whatever it is, because we got all the answers. Um, 
our demand for a level of proof as white people to people of color or people who are LGBTQIA or people who are insert minority view is so high that the person feels attacked and then their story is lost. And when she talks about evidence, that's what she's talking about. Are you going to demand that they have, do they have to have a video when they already have the trial? Um, so that, that's where I'm going. And, and that's precisely correct. You know, we, we have this, this high level that is, it, and it's not wrong to ask for evidence. What's wrong is that we ask for way more from people of color than what we ask for white, from white people. That's, That's the, the issue. Were you next, Nikki? Okay, somebody was back there who was next, I think it might have been you. Um, I have a, actually I have a lot to share, but I'm gonna try not to say a whole lot and take up everybody's time, but, um, well, I was thinking about when I came here, uh, how whiteness affects me. And uh, what I definitely realized when I get with white folks in these conversations about whiteness or being anti-racist, like I find that we do a lot of um, historical context or statistical sharing or data and information sharing. And what I always feel like is missing, it, just from my experience uh, in many different white people spaces, um, is that we, I feel that it's a failure to not do actual self-reflection. Like, I don't ever hear white people personally share ways that whiteness has robbed them of their own humanity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I guess for me, I'll just start by doing that now. Um, ways that I feel that whiteness has shown up for me uh, and what it's cost me most importantly are uh, my relationships with people of color, mm -hmm. uh, my own humanity and empathy from actually doing something when I see people of color uh, being hurt or killed or brutalized or overly policed or overly surveilled um, or surveillance, I'm not sure the right word. Um, my whiteness keeps me uninformed. Uh, I could easily go to work, maybe get on Facebook, maybe not get on Facebook, maybe watch the news, maybe not, and I'll still live through the day and be fine because my white members in my life live the same kind of life that I do and I don't have white people around me who are struggling to survive or being brutalized by the police. So I can live without that information and be fine. Mm -hmm. um, another way that whiteness uh, keeps me from humanity, my own humanity, is that it's uh, kept me without a community of care. Mm -hmm. uh, because I do feel that white people really don't need each other to survive um, in the same ways that people of color have had to survive or uh, share each other's resources. Um, because they're in struggle with one another or, you know, severely overly oppressed. Um, I don't feel that white people build community out of struggle or anything like that. Um, I feel that we tend to feel that we're self-sufficient um, because we are privileged. Uh, we are pretty much afforded every system possible to our benefit. Um, so. To me, it's just a different way when you, when you talk about the way we show up socially, personally, systemically, politically, et cetera. I mean, to me, all, all I can do is really trickle all that down back to myself. Um, it's really kept me from doing what's right and standing up for people of color um, because I've failed to 
racialize the context of what was happening around me. I could see white people and black people in discussion or um, in a certain learning environment or the, just the way that something is set up around me and I can see that it's harmful to people of color. I can watch these videos and I can see how disgusting it is and it's so terrible. Mm -hmm. And there's something within me which I can only identify as whiteness that keeps me in some type of film that keeps me from going, these are white people hurting people of color. People of color are being brutalized and murdered and hunt, hunted down right now from Charlotte. Um, and what am I doing? Because I know that I can still say a child was hurt, a 13-year-old was killed, a black man couldn't walk him from work, a black woman was killed because her blinker was out. And I can still sit here and I can read through it like it's information. And I can only think that whiteness is what keeps me contained in that and from actually doing something because it, it's not an act of humanity to sit back and continue my own life and go to my nine to five. Um, and One of my favorite statistics, from, or favorite quotes from public health is that statistics are people with the tears washed off. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess like when we talk about dismantling the power structure, I really feel like you don't really have to look much further than out like within yourself because we're participating in that. And I, I'm trying to figure out ways to continue self-reflecting and sharing mm -hmm. that in hopes that other white people will share their process with me yeah. um, so that I could better self-reflect, so that I can then move differently in the world. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to place the burden on people of color to teach me. I don't want to place the burden on people of color to show me, um, to give me more evidence. I mean, one example of it clearly is what's happening in Charlotte. We have the media portraying a certain picture, which is the white media. And as white people, we can sit and watch that. Or if you're in relationship to people of color, you know exactly what's happening on the ground, in the street, every single night. It's not what the media is portraying. Um, we are asking for evidence and we're fr about who killed Justin Scott, one of the black protesters mm -hmm. there in the movement. And I know people of color who were right there around him with him, and yet, uh, we're framing another black protester who was there present with them fighting for the same thing and we've put that on him instead of the police but what we're continue doing is asking on the burden of people of color to say well who really was it hand over your video footage we know it could have been a white cop there's no way it could have been a white cop so that's my self-reflection I appreciate that yeah um, that leads me into my second part um, I am a member of QPOC, the Queer People, People of Color Collective here in Greensboro. I am a member of the Anti-Racist White Committee of that organization. Um, and tonight, I, if you, anyone feels called, uh, this isn't about me personally at all whatsoever or any organization that I am a part of or not, I appreciate being here. Um, but if I have a donation jar, if anybody wants to put in money, um, I'm tr we're trying to get money for people in Charlotte right now. There's uh, about 120 black protesters and people of color who've been arrested and jailed. Um, they're literally being videotaped at, in just like regular times in their life and being found and taken into custody and then uh, being charged from when they were protesting in the street. So we have black people who were on video in, on Facebook uh, last week and you know, for example, they're at like a grocery store or they're taking a walk in the woods and the police are scooping them up and putting them in jail right now. So um, we're raising money for the Charlotte Uprising. Uh, it's through the Durham Solidarity Fund, the Freedom Fighter Fund. If anybody feels called or compelled to um, take all this knowledge as being anti-racist white folks to possibly give some money, I know that Bay Love was putting this out on Facebook and I know many of you have already, but I would just feel mad love and would feel really good 
doing something for people of color and now sitting in jail who are like our friends and family, some from Greensboro, some from QPOC, most in Charlotte. Um, so I'm gonna just pass that around. I hope it doesn't disrupt the meeting. And I appreciate y'all listening a lot <laughs> and letting me take up so much space. Thank you. For <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so what goes spot for me, hearing this, is that one of the huge costs, I think, for us as white people is that in order to, to keep going in the way, we have to cut off our own, we have to cut off compassion. Say that again? We have to cut off our compassion. In order to keep going, we have to cut off our compassion. Yeah, we have to not feel. Right. Uh, and then, um, the, then compassion is no longer available, even for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was showing up in a lot of what we were saying today, and some of what we were saying today. But when we're thinking about what, what the advantage is, you know, how life would be so much better for us, um, we keep getting stuck into, well, but we have to, and this and that. You know, it gets into how awful the system is for others. Instead of, hey, let's cut ourselves some slack and find compassion for me. And, and that becomes a doorway then to opening my compassion to those who need it more than I do. And, and it's this really squirrely both and sort of paradox that um, the way we love our neighbors also teaches us how to love ourselves. And that we can't love our neighbors if we don't figure out how to love ourselves. And because of our deeply seated dichotomous thinking, we really, it's hard to reconcile. Like, I spent a lot of energy trying to figure out what is enough. What is enough in this work? You know, and, and am I responsible for all of it? And if I let myself, I'm going to get sucked back into that individualism mentality where I think I am responsible for the whole thing and for all possible actions to undo it. And if I think that, I'm going to burn myself up like a sparkler and not get anywhere. So we need each other. We need to get together and take this action. And some of that is messy, <laughs> but it's so worth it. And for me, sometimes Helen, the best way and the best thing I can do sometimes because I, I, I feel that a lot of, you know, I, I just can't, you know, I've got kids and I can't do this, is that I always, at, at the least, even, you know, maybe it's a day where in my day or in what's going on in my world, that's, I can't deal with that today. But I always remember that that's a privilege I have. Yes. Is to be able to say that. Mm -hmm. I can put this down today. And people of color can't. As long as you don't forget that. Yeah. And we have to just practice that resistance. We have to practice facing the reality because we're we're used to not having to. Um, and we need each other to help build that capacity to face it. Someone over here had a question, sir. I just um, every time I hear a lot of those conversations, and there, there are points where I, I get little twinges I worry because I, um, I'm a sociologist so it's all about context. It's all about both and. Yeah. Um, and you know I, I want to 
complicate things even more. I'm just saying it's like, yes, we, we need to recognize that our patterns in terms of whiteness, but we don't want to overly extend the idea that whiteness is one thing. Mm. Right? We are both in. We're race, we're our race and ethnicity, we're also our, our sex, our gender, our class. Right? So my experience as a white upper middle class male is very different from a lower class mm -hmm. um, white female. Mm -hmm. right? So that whiteness is not one thing. Right. We have to keep that. If we want to have that flexibility to understand that our, my whiteness is different from someone's non-whiteness, but at the same time, we can't lump all the whiteness together. We can't lump all the blackness together. I mean, part of the Black Lives Matter movement is, a huge part of it is to recognizing the diversity within the black community as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we need to recognize the patterns, but also diversify the patterns. Yeah, and what we just have to be careful with that is that it's easy to allow those other aspects of our identity to eclipse the experience of whiteness, because there are things that we share, but that's why that both and is so critical, because there, that's what intersectionality is about, is that at times my whiteness is gonna be in the foreground of the moment, and at times my womanhood is going to be in the foreground. But in our society, most of the time, whiteness is what leads. And so that's, it's because we aren't practiced at experiencing ourselves in a racially constructed society, it's so tempting for us to just put, put that in the, the periphery of our awareness. But yeah, I appreciate you saying that because it's so true. And one of the, the functions of whiteness and racism is to divide white people based on our different experiences of whiteness get us to think that it isn't actually a thing and not realize that we can get together to solve it. As, as a, I, I learned when I was in, uh, in about third grade that um, <coughs> I looked like people didn't have to know I was native. And until I was in high school, I simply didn't mention it again because I had learned what it meant to be native. People who knew the family knew anyway. And once I left home, nobody had to know if I didn't mention it, which gives me an awareness of my whiteness that maybe other people don't have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, very aware that my whiteness gives me a privilege that my, many of my relatives don't have when they step out in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but I also want to point out, earlier you said that, that racism probably hit the black community hardest. If you look at the numbers, that's not true. The native community, whether it's incarceration rates, poverty rates, number of young men who are killed by police who are unarmed, um, all of those things, the statistics are way worse in the native community. Yeah. You don't see it much here in North Carolina, perhaps, but when I go home, I do. And if you read any of Andrew Jackson's um, writings or biography of him, oh it will be very clear, yeah, that the plan for indigenous people and First Nation people in this country was not to exist. The plan for them was annihilation. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, in schools that my ancestors had been. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. I mean, people I know have been. Yeah, you had, either, you had assimilation or annihilation. Those were your choices. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Um, so before we go, I want to spend just a couple of minutes with y'all thinking about the answer to this question. And if you will just turn to your neighbor um, and talk to your neighbor. Um, for just about two minutes 
about these two questions. When I think about white culture, I wonder. Finish that sentence. When I think about white culture, I wonder. And then I'll let you go for a minute with that, talk to each other about it, and then I'll give you another question in a minute, okay? This is just a chance to sort of process some of what we've talked about and think about it. Um, and then when we come back, we'll, we'll wrap up with that. Answer that question for yourself and your neighbor for the next couple of minutes.
just like to invite two or three people to share something that their neighbor told them that makes them excited to work about racial justice. So share something that your neighbor told you that makes you excited to work on racial justice. Does that make sense? <laughs> so no, this is now we're going to report out a little bit, and then we're going to wrap up. So if you, I want to invite a few folks to, to like raise their hand and share something with the group that their neighbor or one of the other people they were talking with said that makes you inspired to work on racial justice. My friend just told me that when she's in the grocery store and her, her purse is out, she just doesn't ever think anything about it, it's just in there. But when she walks by older white women, they cover their purse because they're afraid she's going to steal their stuff. And that makes me sad that we still, in this year, 2016, we still are protecting our purses or locking our doors or, I mean, look at her. <laughs> what would make you hide your purse? I just, so that's, that's what she told me. Yeah. Anyone else want to share? Something that somebody else told you that makes you inspired or excited to, or motivated to work on racial justice. talk about having a community of care that's like tapping into the social nature of humanity yeah. and like our society so conditions us to just think about our individual self-interest and stuff and, so, and yeah I think it's a it can be a transform transformational experience and then tapping into what it really means to be human. One more person? This is a little different, but uh, talking to a uh, trainer at the gym I go to, who's African American, is just a great guy. Um, came back last week and he was talking, I guess, to my wife, and he said, "You know, I went to Washington, stayed at the hotel, and went to the new museum, African American museum." And he's a big, tough guy. He said, "You know, I cried the whole time I was in there." And as I relived the whole slavery and you know where what we've been through, I had to go up and tell him later. I said, "You made my day, man." Tell him sharing that with me. So I think there's us trying to live. I don't know. That connection. Anybody and thank you to our hosts for having us here tonight. Thank you for joining us in this important work. Have a good night.